Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books and Intellectual History, we have Dr. Jerry Gershenhorn, who is the Julius L. Chambers Professor of History at North Carolina Central University and author of Lewis Austin and the Carolina Times, A Life in the Long Black Freedom Struggle, published by the University of North Carolina Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gershenhorn. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for inviting me to talk about my book. Sure, you're welcome. Lewis Austin and the Carolina Times is a nuanced retelling of the Black freedom struggle in North Carolina through the life and activism of Lewis Austin. First, we will discuss Dr. Gershenhorn's biography and some thoughts on intellectual history in general, and then we will engage in a more detailed discussion of his book. Dr. Gershenhorn, please tell us some more about your teaching and research interests. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, my uh, most of my research and teaching interests kind of parallel each other, Um my research interests include both, uh, well, intellectual history, um, African-American history, North Carolina history, uh, which I teach a class every year on North Carolina history, uh, U.S. I'm mostly focused on the 20th century, uh, 20th century history, and I'm very interested in the uh, black freedom struggle and the role of, uh, at the present, my focus is uh, the black press, and particularly the southern black press, and their impact on uh, the freedom struggle. So how do you come to study African-American history, and or, or particularly with a focus on North Carolina? Is it something that you were always interested or, or you know, just stumbled upon, or uh, how'd you get into the study of African-Americans in North Carolina? Right. Well, I'm, I'm actually originally from New York, and uh, I came down to uh, North Carolina to study at North Carolina Central University in, in Durham, North Carolina, where I now teach. Uh, and so I didn't really know much about North Carolina history. I had a long interest in uh, African-American history and African-American culture and, and I would say civil rights uh, when I was fairly young, uh, I was influenced my, by my father, who was involved uh, to a degree in politics and uh, uh, elections. He was, in 1968, he was a uh, alternate delegate at the 1968 Democratic Convention in Chicago for uh, Eugene McCarthy. And he took the whole family, actually, to Chicago. So I went along. I was only 13 at the time, but uh, that influenced me. And so as a young guy, even in junior high school and high school, I was involved in uh, election campaigns, you know, going door to door and and that type of thing. So I kind of had a long influ- uh, kind of uh, kind of focus, interested in politics and and liberal politics. So anyway, when I got to North Carolina, uh, 
I did the, my master's degree at NCCU, North Carolina Central University, and I did my thesis actually on an intellectual history topic on a historian named Early Thorpe, who wrote uh, several books about slavery and also about uh, black historians and also uh, what's considered uh, the first intellectual history of African-Americans, a book called Mind of the Negro, an intellectual history of Afro- Afro-Americans that was published in 1961. And so uh, he, uh, Dr. Thorpe had actually been my advisor, uh, Percy Murray, who was the chair of the history department at NCCU. He suggested that I write about uh, Early Thorpe, who had just passed the year before I got to NCCU. So that was kind of my introduction to North Carolina history because Thorpe uh, grew up in Durham, North Carolina and worked in North Carolina most of his life. But it was also my introduction to intellectual history uh, as well and, and African-American history. So from there, um, I continued. Actually, when I went for my PhD, at uh, I did my PhD at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I wrote about a, a white anthropologist, uh, Melville Herskovitz, who uh, was very interested in uh, the cultures of people of African descent. So he, he uh, charted the African cultural influence on uh, African Americans, not just in the U.S., but uh, people of African descent throughout the Americas, uh, and argued that uh, there was a strong uh, African cultural influence on uh, African peoples and also on uh, Euro-Americans as well in the Americas. And that at the time was a you know, kind of a minority view when he was writing, he published Myth of the Negro Past in 1941. Uh, and so, and subsequent to that, I kind of went back I, to my interest on North Carolina. I had become interested in the black press initially uh, in reading early Thorpe's papers. I found a letter to the editor he had written when he was uh, serving in World War II in Italy. He wrote a letter to the editor of the Carolina Times, Lewis Austin. Uh, and that was the first uh, I time I came across the Carolina Times. And then it took a while. I, I published a book about Melville Herskovitz. And then I came back to Lewis Austin in really in the early 2000s. So it's been a kind of a long, uh, a long kind of focus on Austin. I wasn't sure I was writing a book. In fact, it was kind of a, a funny story. I, I had published a, a journal article about Lewis Austin, about his activism in the 1930s. And then I was on a program at UNC Chapel Hill. It was focused on Paulie Murray, who uh, many people may be familiar with. Uh, Paulie Murray was a, an important uh, civil rights activist, women's rights a- activist. In fact, uh, she was quite influential on um, the kind of ideology and uh, legal practice of, of uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who, of course, just passed away. Um, with regard to the you know the role of the Fourteenth Amendment in fighting for women's rights, and Paulie Murray wrote about that. Um, but anyway, this was a program about Paulie Murray, uh, and when I was being introduced on the program, they said, "Okay, this is Jerry Gershenhorn. He's writing a book about Lewis Austin." And actually, I didn't know I was writing a book about Lewis Austin at that point. <laughs> I had only uh, published one article, but uh, I, I kind of went on from there, and, and, and eventually was able to come up with this book. So you actually raised some of the, or began to respond to some of the questions that I've had related specifically to intellectual history. 
And I always use this quote on the show, that David Hollander's quote to define intellectual history as, say, the study of a people who made a living by arguing. And um, so it's a difficult field to define sometimes because it intersects with, you know, cultural studies, uh, social history, uh, your your career in, in terms of studying intellectual history, you know, is has some connection to social movements and uh, social history. So I would like to hear your definition of uh, intellectual history. What is intellectual history? And maybe say some more about how it relates to your, your text on Lewis Austin. Yeah, I would say I have a, a, a pretty expansive view of intellectual history. I mean, I know traditionally, uh, I guess going back a number of decades, intellectual historians focused on, uh, you know, kind of the elite. And for the most part, uh, if you go back, uh, you know, it was elite white uh, intellectuals, you know, with, uh, you know, people like, say, Thomas Jefferson or, or uh, that sort of thing. But um, I mean, I, my view is that, you know, of course, all people uh, have, you know, have thoughts and, you know, their ideas and their thoughts influence their action. And I'm particularly interested in, in the kind of connection between thought and action and obviously uh, uh, social movements because of my writing. Um, so, you know, I, w- I would argue for a very expansive view of intellectual history. So we look at the ideas, not just of elites, but of, you know, everyday people and people who were activists. And uh, we can also see their ideology through their actions or through, you know, sometimes through their work. You know, if they were involved in, say, the labor movement or the civil rights movement, uh, even if they were not, uh, you know, say, formally educated, and even if they were not actually publishing, you know, publishing work. Uh, but in my own in my own work, I, I certainly have focused on, you know, kind of individuals who might be seen as kind of traditional intellectuals, you know, people like Early Thorpe, uh, an historian, you know, a historian with a Ph.D. and, and Melville Herskovitz, an anthropologist with a Ph.D. Um, but uh, Lewis Austin, you know, not as well educated. Of course, he did publish and his I guess his life would fit. Uh, Hollinger's definition because he, uh, you know, his, uh, he argued for a living in a sense, you know, he, he wrote editorials. He was, uh, you know, an activist and uh, an advocate and what we would call an advocate uh, or someone who participated in advocacy journalism. Um, But, you know, individuals who took action, for example, against segregation, uh, Austin wrote about, uh, individuals who refused to move to the back of the bus actually, you know, challenged segregation on buses in the 1930s, you know, a couple of decades, even before uh, Rosa Parks and Montgomery. Um, and by doing so, they were, you know, I would argue in a sense, part of intellectual history because they were challenging the dominant ideology in the South, which was racial segregation and, uh, and oppression of African-Americans. So, uh, and Austin gave, voice to their actions by publicizing what they did and backing them up and trying to support them uh, in in ways he could. Um, so, uh, yeah, I would, I would have a very expansive view of intellectual history. And, uh, you know, I think uh, ideas influence action. So, therefore, 
you know, that would encompass, uh, you know, I think, as you said, almost all of history would be intellectual history would relate to, uh, you know, a lot of different facets of history. Right. I, I completely agree with you that we have to uh, embrace a more expansive view, particularly when we're talking about African-American intellectual history, where these are folks who are closed out of academies and institutions. They have to use the newspaper. They have to use the pulpit, you know, to get their ideas out there because they're not, you know, allowed into, you know, so many spaces. And I think you are making that connection when you're thinking about African-American intellectual history. We're talking about public intellectuals and um, different types of intellectuals. Uh, who have ideas and thoughts about freedom. And we see it in the life of Lewis Austin. Let's turn more directly to your text then. Tell us some more about, um, you know, who was Lewis Austin and particularly why you think he's unique among Black newspaper men, Black newspaper men in the South. This connects to a question we'll talk about later, but you know, tell us some more about him. I'm sure many people, when they think about the freedom struggle in uh, North Carolina, they probably think about Robert F. Williams and, you know, the focus of a lot of uh, Black freedom struggle scholarship. North Carolina has been on figures like uh, Robert F. Williams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things I wanted to do in this book was to really shine a light on the Southern Black press. I mean, uh, you know, a fair amount more, I would say, has been not written on northern black newspapers like the Chicago Defender or the Pittsburgh Courier. Uh, and recently, actually, uh, there has been a more of a focus by historians on the southern black press. Uh, so I, I'm really pleased with that. But Lewis Austin was the editor and publisher of the Carolina Times from 1927 to 1971. So for over four decades. And the, the paper actually started uh, in 1921. It was initially called the Standard Advertiser. And it went through a series of uh, editors uh, until Lewis Austin purchased the newspaper in, in 1927. And he's, you know, his main focus was to use the paper as uh, as a kind of vehicle for uh, civil rights protest and social protest. Uh, he, you know, some, uh, you know, when you think about a, a newspaper, newspapers of business. Uh, but for Austin, it wasn't primarily a business. I mean, Austin never made uh, much money. He was not a by any uh, stretch of the imagination, a wealthy man. Uh, in fact, I, I, you know, I think the fact that his wife was a public school teacher and had therefore, although not a great income in, in those years when uh, black teachers were paid significantly less than white teachers, but she had a steady income, which I think helped uh, right. Austin keep the paper going. Because you know, when you're running a newspaper uh, based on criticizing the powers that be, and Austin was, uh, was one newspaper editor who not only criticized, uh, you know, white elites and white uh, oppression outside of the state, but he he criticized local uh, white Durhamites as well as w- local white North Carolinians. And sometimes he criticized black, uh, black North Carolinians as well, if he felt they weren't doing what they, what he felt they should be doing in challenging racial injustice. So as a result, when you're, uh, you know, when you're relying on um, advertising, which most newspapers get most of their income from advertising, uh, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a, a difficult proposition because when he would criticize these individuals or organizations, uh, sometimes they were would cut off their his advertising. 
So white, uh, he did get white businesses to advertise, and sometimes they would they would cut him out, or even sometimes black businesses, which often helped them, and sometimes loaned him money, but sometimes they would uh, reduce their advertising uh, as well. Uh, so, uh, but you know, his his role was or goal was to you know was to defeat racial injustice, and he had uh, had that kind of uh, instilled in him by his family. Uh, early on, there was a, I tell, talk about an incident that I was told by uh, Lewis Austin's um, uh, mother. And uh, when I interviewed her and also his, uh, I'm not sorry, his uh, daughter, his daughter and, and grandson who told me the same story. But uh, when he was a young, a young guy, he was about, I think, seven or eight years old. He was, his father ran a, a barbershop for white customers in Enfield, North Carolina, where he, where he grew up in Halifax County, which is, you know, uh, rural North Carolina in the east, uh, and uh, one time uh, he saw a, a few other kids going up to the white customers and trying to get uh, you know a customer to do shoe shines. So they went up to the uh, would go up to these white guys and say shine Captain shine, and so Austin mimicked them trying to do the same thing, and he said the same thing. And his father, who was in the midst of uh, shaving a customer, a white customer, stopped in his tracks and turned to Lewis young Lewis Austin and told him, don't ever hear me, you know, say something here, you know, hear you say something like that. Uh, no man is better than you. You, you know, you are uh, the captain of your own soul. And, you know, essentially uh, this was kind of what uh, his father and his parents instilled in him that all, all people were equal. They, they were a very religious family. They were Christians, uh, members of the AME church and that everybody was equal before God. And so Austin used his kind of beliefs in democracy and in, uh, you know, a kind of a more, uh, I guess, egalitarian-based Christianity to uh, challenge racial injustice, you know, for his, you know, for his entire life. Yeah, so you bring up, you bring that up in the introduction of the, the long black freedom struggle versus long civil rights movement. And AME Church as the Liberation Church and the tradition of, you know, dignity and respectability in his own family and how that shaped him. And so let's turn to that question. You make a point of delineation between the phrases long black freedom struggle and long civil rights movement in the introduction section of the text. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more uh, at as this applies to the life of Austin and North Carolina in particular, because you say early on that this book is about Austin, but it's also about the Bennett college students, uh, Conrad Pearson and others in North Carolina who are also active alongside Austin. Right. So that, yeah. So, I mean, when I talk about the long black freedom struggle, so I'm talking about, I'm, I guess I'm challenging. And of course, many other historians have done this, but challenging the traditional or maybe popular notion of the civil rights movement as beginning uh, with, say, the uh, 1954 uh, Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education declaring uh, public school uh, public school segregation unconstitutional, or the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott, and then the movement ending with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and so historians have pushed pushed the timeline. So back from the 50s to at least the 30s, and then uh, pushing the timeline forward beyond the 60s. And so I definitely agree with that. The movement definitely, uh, you know, encompasses more than just uh, 54, 55 to 68. But 
uh, I'm not sure that the, you know, that the, you know, you had the critical mass uh, of organizations and numbers involved in what may, might be considered a mass movement uh, prior to uh, the 50s. So I call it a, a, a long black freedom struggle. And of course, I'm not the first to do that, but others have used that term as well and distinguish it from um, the civil rights movement uh, because uh, I don't think the numbers were there, although there were many organizations, but I don't know if it would really satisfy uh, some people's definitions of a social movement going back to the 30s. Um, but Austin, you know, one of the things that was that I could do with this book because of Austin's own uh, tenure, you know, um, editing the paper from 27 to 71, was that his his career kind of tracks this long freedom struggle because, I mean, I would argue it goes back at least to the 30s. Um, but uh, Austin's life uh, and his, uh, you know, his leadership of the Carolina Times uh, allows, allows someone looking at his life to use his life as kind of a lens through which you can see the movement or the struggle from uh, the 30s through the early 70s. Austin died in 1971. Uh, and I would argue it goes beyond 71. His, his daughter took over the newspaper, Vivian Edmonds, who was his daughter. She published a newspaper after him and continued in the same uh, kind of uh, fight against racial injustice after his uh, passing. So, and as you say, I do kind of look at uh, a lot of the individuals and organizations within North Carolina who were you know, involved in this freedom struggle. So you can look at people, lawyers like Conrad Pearson and Cecil McCoy, who brought uh, the first uh, legal case to challenge uh, racial segregation in higher education in 1933 with Austin's support. And Austin was one of the architects of that case. It was called Hocutt versus Wilson when Thomas Raymond Hocutt, a uh, young African-American uh, who was uh, graduating from North Carolina College, as uh, as North Carolina Central was called in those days, and he wanted to get a pharmacy degree. But there was no pharmacy uh, school in North Carolina that African-Americans could go through to because the pharmacy school was at UNC Chapel Hill, and that school was for whites only. So Austin and Pearson and McCoy, the two attorneys, were looking for an African-American to mount this challenge. And so a uh, very courageous young man, Thomas Raymond Hocutt, stepped up and they filed this lawsuit. And even though the lawsuit failed in state court in 33, uh, it was the first case and it was something to build on. And in fact, uh, uh, Pearson, who had graduated from Howard University Law School in 1932, had been a classmate of Thurgood Marshall. And Thurgood Marshall, of course, would go on to work for the NAACP as their top attorney, and he studied the Hocutt case in Howard University Law School in his last year. And uh, eventually, of course, they moved on and filed cases in Maryland and Missouri and Texas and elsewhere, uh, ultimately uh, leading to the desegregation of, uh, uh, I guess, legal and professional education, and then eventually uh, undergrad education in the South. So I, I would say that the Hocutt case was kind of a uh, a first case and a kind of predecessor of those cases that led to substantive change. So you're getting into our next question, 
too, uh, regarding Lewis Austin becoming a transformative leader in the struggle for Black equality in North Carolina, the question is, you know, how was he able to to do this? I, I think you began to answer that, the support from his wife, the fact that she had a stable job as a teacher, right? But Austin, is, it seems, at least from what I gleaned from the book, is he's kind of surrounded by accommodationists in the Black community who are not, you know, going as far as he does by sitting up and, you know, refusing to sit in the balcony. He gave me a chuckle where you say, he says, I'm not sitting in the buzzard roost. You know, he's refusing to go along with segregation, but it seems like some uh, in the Black community surrounding him, at least in the 30s and 40s, are not going as far as he does, and this is what makes him a transformative leader. So can you say some more about, you know, how and why he became a transformative leader while others either refused to or were too afraid? Right, right. Yeah, so he, yeah, he, you know, and I would say he was not alone, but yeah, he definitely challenged the older generation. I see it kind of generationally uh, to an extent. And also, you know, how these uh, black leaders were situated within uh, their communities uh, with regard to business and that type of thing. So uh, in North Carolina and particularly in Durham, you had a very uh, uh, impressive and successful group of black business uh, professionals. Uh, North Carolina, Durham was the, the place where the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company was founded in 1898, uh, and that became the largest black-owned business in the world. So uh, you had the leaders of that corporation. You had North Carolina uh, College for Negroes as NCCU was called then, led by, founded and led by James Shepard, who was a pivotal figure by the 1930s. C.C. Spaulding was the president of North Carolina Mutual uh, and also Mechanics and Farmers Bank, which had been founded in, in uh, 1908, which was an important black bank in, uh, in the South. And uh, so these business people and James Shepard as well, I would, I would uh, call them gradualists or moderates uh, but you're, you're correct. They did accommodate to segregation. They didn't directly challenge segregation. Um, and, you know, their, their style was to negotiate behind the scenes with white leaders in the community and also within the state for kind of gradual improvements in the black community. So to try to get more funding for black uh, public uh, primary and secondary schools, as well as black colleges uh, and, and those types of things. But Austin rejected that kind of gradualism uh, or behind the scenes work. He wanted to directly challenge segregation. And so he was really one of the architects of using new tactics within the community. Uh, one was to file lawsuits, which uh, many of the uh, uh, gradualists in the black community refused to do so. They, they did not want to directly challenge whites. They felt that would jeopardize their, their positions. Well, Austin used lawsuits. He he filed, uh, you know, supported the filing of the Hokut case and other cases. He also supported lawsuits to try to equalize teacher salaries during that period. There were lawsuits filed uh, regarding uh, teacher salary equalization in many southern states, but actually not in North Carolina because the, the major black leaders in the North Carolina Teachers Association, which was the Black Teachers Association, was... Uh, led and controlled to a large extent by uh, people like James Shepard, who refused to go that route. 
but Austin pursued uh, legal tactics, as did people like Conrad Pearson. He also supported, you know, uh, very strong efforts at voter registration. And as early as 1932, uh, he and, uh, you know, some of his uh, supporters and associates, people like uh, Robert McCants Andrews, who was a black attorney in Durham, uh, who had gone to Harvard Law School, um, and uh, people like, um, well, Conrad Pearson uh, a little bit later uh, as well. So these individuals, uh, in 1932, they mounted a, a voter registration campaign. And one of the things they did that was different was, you know, uh, traditionally African-Americans at that point were Republicans going back to the Reconstruction era. But Austin and others said, you know, and this was in the midst of the Great Depression, Herbert Hoover was president, uh, you know, was up for re-election in 1932 and being challenged by Franklin Roosevelt. And Austin and, and many African-Americans started to say, uh, you know, the Republicans haven't done anything for us lately. And in fact, the Republicans are, are making things worse with the depression. And of course, African-Americans suffered much worse than whites, even though whites were suffering as well. And so Austin said, we need to, you know, forget about the Republican Party and move to try to influence the Democrats and even though the Democrats in the South were the party of white supremacy, it was also a one-party South. So if you wanted to influence political action, you, you, you know, Austin and others felt you had to work within the Democratic Party. So he started to mobilize voter registration of African-Americans as Democrat in, 19, in 1932. And he was uh, supported by uh, another black editor, uh, a man named Hugo Fontelio Nanton, who was the editor of the Carolina Tribune which was the black newspaper in Raleigh. Uh, and Nanton actually had worked for Austin and been mentored by Austin. So they uh, started this voter registration campaign, which was uh, had a degree of success. It was really the first major effort in, uh, in uh, Durham and Raleigh uh, and really across the state uh, to try to register substantial numbers of black voters because of you know the, the obstacles uh, blacks faced at that time. Uh, not only did you have white supremacist control of the Democratic Party, but you also had the literacy test and white control of the registration process. So uh, now in North Carolina, you did not have a poll tax. The poll tax had been uh, had been uh, over uh, overturned in 1920 uh, in North Carolina, but still tremendous obstacles. And and the kind of importance of this 1932 voter registration campaign is showed by the vociferous resistance by people like Josephus Daniels, who was the editor and publisher of the Raleigh News and Observer. And Daniels had been one of the leaders in the 1898 campaign to overthrow the uh, biracial black-white fusionist movement and also leading to the you know horrific Wilmington race massacre in which many African-Americans were killed and forced to leave the city. So Daniels uh, argued that the white, that the Democratic Party was a white man's party and was going to do everything he could to keep it that way. But Austin and, 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 uh, and Andrews refused to back down. And so that was kind of the beginning. In 1935, uh, Durham uh, leader, black leaders formed the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs, and they started to gradually increase black political influence. Yeah, I think this text is so nuanced in terms of the way that you uh, develop the narrative, the roots of the long black freedom struggle in the 30s and beyond. And I think that's important as well as demonstrating that 
you know, Austin as a, a black newspaper man in the South is, you know, doing all of these things. And why we have to recognize that there are other newspaper men and women in the North and the West, you know, doing similar things. And we seem to have focused a great deal on them as historians. But as historians begin to look at people like Austin, in what ways? Well, I want to go back to one thing. He used, you know, very direct language to indict segregation. I would even say sort of colorful language. You know, he wasn't, it wasn't just, this is wrong. He said, you know, I'm not sitting in the buzzard roost. I'm not going to do that. So I thought that was fascinating, the fact that he used very direct and strident words to say, you know, we're going to attack, you know, segregation. That's one thing. But another thing is how um, similar or different are these actions that he took through the newspaper and beyond to these other editors like uh, Robert S. Abbott, the Chicago Defender, and Charlotta Bass in uh, the California Eagle. You know, was he, you know, so progressive in that he was doing something different? Was it similar to these other editors? And how does he get away with that language? I mean, I I was fascinated by the fact that, you know, he just was very strident. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He, yeah, I mean, the, the motto of the paper was the truth unbridled. And he was certainly unbridled. He, you know, he he gave it to white supremacists and even sometimes some black leaders. But uh, yeah, he was incredibly powerful and bold in his uh, language and in his uh, challenge to uh, racial injustice wherever he saw it. Uh, I mean, in some ways, I would say he's similar to you know to some of the uh, you know other black uh, uh, press leaders like Abbott and and, uh, and Charlotte Bass. I mean, one of the interesting things about uh, Charlotte Bass, I guess she, you know she's been getting a lot of attention in uh, you know in the media uh, because you know she ran for vice president on the Progressive Party uh, platform in 1952. And one of the kind of parallels with Austin, Austin was actually a big supporter of the Progressive Party in 1948 uh, when uh, Henry Wallace was running for president, uh, when uh, Harry Truman was running for president in 48 as a Democrat. And, uh, you know, the more, uh, uh, I guess, uh, progressive or more, and especially racially liberal uh, African-American and whites uh, some of them sided with Wallace because Wallace spoke out against segregation in 1948 for the Progressive Party, and Austin backed him. Uh, so I, I see some parallels with with uh, Austin and, and Charlotta Bass with that in that regard. And of course, uh, Bass was a very bold, uh, you know, uh, editor as well in challenging racial injustice, as was Abbott. You know, the difference is, I think, you know, as you as you point out you know, Austin being in the South. I mean, uh, not to say that there weren't dangers for black editors anywhere, but I think the dangers were were heightened in the South. And Austin was threatened. He had, uh, you know, the Klan burned crosses on his front uh, lawn. Um, you know, so, you know, he was often in danger, but he was, he was courageous. He was under FBI surveillance and IRS harassment during World War II. Um, but he, you know, he just would not back down. And he had, you know, he had a lot of supporters in the community, um, even among, you know, the kind of gradualists, you know, the business elite. He, you know, he was friends with them, even though he criticized them. You know, they understood, 
you know, where he was coming from. And, you know, they didn't always agree, but they would, you know, they would have his back. Uh, there was one, uh, one situation where, uh, uh, this was in the 1930s and Austin, uh, Austin, I think was, may have been asleep or something. He heard some noises on his front porch and, and prior to this, he'd been threatened, uh, for, you know, some of the things he was publishing in the paper. And uh, so he looked out, out the window and it turned out it was a bunch of his friends uh, standing guard on his front porch with rifles to protect him. So, uh, you know, there's no doubt he was in danger. But, but I think, as I said, it's important to focus on the Southern black press. I mean, there had been kind of a traditional narrative, at least by some, that the Southern black press was much more conservative than the Northern black press. And, and although I would argue that there are, you know, variations, not all Southern black editors, North, Northern black editors, are obviously the same. They had different perspectives in, in many cases. But, uh, you know, I would say Austin was actually not unique in the sense there were others. I mean, John McRae uh, in uh, South Carolina for the Lighthouse and Informer, he was another very brave uh, black journalist uh, during this same period. Uh, and you have, uh, you know, a lot of people know about Daisy Bates. Uh, of Arkansas because of her support of the Little Rock uh, Nine during the, uh, you know, the movement to desegregate Central High School in Little Rock in 1957. But she was the co-editor of the Arkansas State Press with her husband, Elsie Bates. And that newspaper was an important vehicle within Arkansas to fight for, against racial injustice. And Arkansas was no bastion of liberalism either. Uh, so that was dangerous for the Bateses. And, uh, you know, she, like Austin, worked with the NAACP. She, in fact, was the state leader of the NAACP uh, during the 1950s. And, you know, what happened to McRae and Bates, if you look at their newspapers, both of their newspapers were really driven out of business by the white communities. You know, they, they withdrew advertising. In the case of uh, McRae, he was arrested for uh, criminal libel. Uh, and he was eventually jailed, which which you know, helped the uh, newspaper go bankrupt because he was in prison. And the criminal libel was basically he reported on a, a, a case in which an African-American man was charged with raping a white woman. And he reported on the what the African-American man's defense was. And for that, he was basically placed in jail. So, you know, when you talk about freedom of the press in this country, you know, for a lot of black journalists, there was no freedom of the press. But nonetheless, they used the power of that press and the power of their voice to challenge and often to, you know, help to institute to changes. And of course, it was a struggle. It didn't happen overnight. It took, it took a long time, but they continued to work at it. So yeah, yeah, he, you know, he was similar to some of these people. One way he was different than John, uh, than Robert Abbott of the Chicago Defender. Abbott, of course, is uh, famously known for uh, promoting uh, black migration north. Austin felt that blacks should stay in the south. And not because of the same reason of Booker T. Washington, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, uh, work and accommodate to segregation. But he felt that blacks should fight in the South, stay and fight. And that was kind of his argument. Yeah. And you point out he, he's not put out of business either. He's no. although he's got these local rivals and, you know, uh, black critics as well as white critics, obviously, that he stands and fight. And it seems like he puts that into action. Um, through the Carolina Times. Uh, one question is, um, if we're saying, you know, he stood in fight and his paper fought and his paper survived, your last chapter, it was a wonder I wasn't lynched. 
and tell us about how he survived. Tell us more about how is it that this man was not killed or burned out or put out of business? Well, you know, that I guess that's a tough question. Uh, I mean, as I said before, he had a lot of people in back of him and he had, you know, you know, uh, they, some of these individuals like C.C. Spaulding of the North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company or James Shepard uh, of the uh, uh, North Carolina College, although they, you know, they had kind of, I would say, more cordial relations with the white leaders and, you know, they they probably helped him, you know, keep, you know, keep people from. Uh, you know, maybe going after Austin too directly. But uh, as I said, people did go after him and he was threatened. Um, I think some people, some whites rationalized Austin as just kind of a, that he was all, he was just like, you know, actually they called him uh, a crazy communist. Now he wasn't a communist hmm. and he, they, didn't, I, they didn't use the word the crazy. They called him the N word communist, but, you know, but that he was just this, crazy guy and somehow you know he was you know totally ineffectual and had no support in the black community because of course whites wanted to believe that you know that blacks accommodated and were happy in their situation of course you know totally the opposite but but Austin in fact was quite influential in the black community and you know you know I think uh, not only I mean sometimes the elite you know may have thought he you know said a little bit too much but the masses, you know, really loved him. And, uh, you know, one time he was giving, uh, he was at a, uh, uh, a talk and he was giving speeches and there were other African-American leaders giving speeches. And C.C. Spaulding uh, gave a speech. You know, he was the president of the North Carolina Mutual. And, and there was very tepid applause after his speech. And when Austin kind of said the things that he said in print in very bold language, I mean, he would call, you know, he would call white leaders jackasses and you know, stuff like that. And he would say that, you know, segregation smells to high heaven. Those are some of his favorite phrases. Uh, you know, he got, you know, kind of uh, standing ovations. So he was actually quite, you know, popular in the black community. And I think that support uh, may have helped him as well. Um, and although he wasn't put out of business, I, I don't think it was for a lack of trying by, by you know, the white community. Uh, but he survived, you know, it's, you know, I think it's a credit to, to him that he was able to survive and keep the newspaper going. Uh, and it continued under his daughter and his grandson. Unfortunately, his grandson uh, passed away suddenly uh, this past spring. And the newspaper has uh, ceased operations at the moment. There's some people in the community who are, are trying to see if they can get the newspaper back up and going because it had been in the Austin Edmonds family for uh well, something like 93 years. Wow. So what about sources? And uh, this also connects to the um, black press today. Uh, but in terms of your sources and black periodicals uh, in any archival repositories uh, online or not that you either utilize or know of that might be... Um, you know, useful for anyone interested in the history of the black press. Yeah. So one of the challenges of writing about Lewis Austin um, was that, you know, for most historians, you know, when you're doing, uh, well, any kind of research, but uh, certainly a, a type of a biography, 
you want a, a collection of their papers. So there was no collection right. of his papers. I didn't have like the records of the Carolina Times, like the business records. I didn't have his correspondence. You know, that was just not available. You know, his, his grandson told me that they didn't have any of those records. So, uh, you know, I relied to a large degree on the newspapers, on the editorials, of course, the articles. Uh, but I was able to get additional information about Austin and his, uh, you know, his interactions with both whites and blacks through a lot of other manuscript collections. So, for example, uh, um, Guy Johnson, who was a sociologist at, at the University of North Carolina, he had correspondence with Lewis Austin. So I was able to look at his papers. Austin is mentioned uh, quite a bit in the NAACP papers. And, you know, NAACP papers includes both, you know, the national uh, organization, but also the branch records. So Austin was quite involved in the uh, Durham chapter and the state chapter. Uh, so, you know, that information. Uh, there's a lot of information about the Hokut case, for example, that I mentioned before in the NAACP papers. Uh, correspondence between uh, Conrad Pearson and Cecil McCoy uh, with Walter White, who was the NAACP head, for example, which talks about that case. Uh, and then uh, one of the nice things is, well, in terms of, you know, you talk about uh, the newspapers and how you get access to them. So when I started on the, on the project, um, I had to read microfilm. So that's what I did. And unfortunately, there's not a full run available of the, of the Carolina Times. So I think I mentioned that the paper actually started in 1921 prior to Austin purchasing it uh, six years later. Uh, the first newspapers that were uh, available on microfilm were 1937. So I don't have the first 10 years of his, uh, of his uh, you know, tenure as editor. And then uh, uh, you don't have all the other uh, years either, like 44 to 48 is not available on microfilm. And there's a couple of other years missing. Uh, now, more recently, the papers have been digitized by Digital NC. If you go to digitalnc.org, that's a great uh, resource for actually uh, general North Carolina newspapers. But they have... They recently digitized, uh, well, the Carolina Times has digitized all the way up to 1982. Uh, the, the Carolinian, I mentioned the Carolina Tribune, and the successor to the Carolina Tribune, the black newspaper in Raleigh, is the Carolinian, which has been uh, run by the Gervais family, uh, J-E-R-V-A-Y, since, uh, since about 1940, I believe. Uh, and they've digitized a lot of the Carolinian newspapers, I think from 45 to 72. Uh, and so the Digital NC also has a, a number of others. They even have some copies of the Wilmington Daily Record, which was a newspaper in 1898, was destroyed, uh, that was uh, edited by Alex Manley. They have a few copies from 1898 uh, on that site. Um, and then beyond that, you know, with the black press, uh, like the, the Lighthouse and Informer that I mentioned for South Carolina, edited by John McRae, that that newspaper, some of them are digitized by uh, a South Carolina, I think uh, coming out of the South Carolina State Library, but that you can find that online as well. So some of these black newspapers have been digitized in recent years, and so you can read some of them online. Others you'd have to find in local libraries. Uh, um, so yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of a challenge. When I did the Herskovitz book, I had like over 100 boxes of uh, papers of Melville Herskovitz, uh, and in this case, I had to kind of... Uh, you know, kind of uh, put together materials from a variety of sources, uh, as well as the newspapers and other great sources. Uh, some of the major universities have uh, the ProQuest uh, collection of historical black newspapers. 
which includes right. uh, the Norfolk Journal and Guide, as well as Pittsburgh Courier, Chicago Defender, uh, I think the Amsterdam News, and several others, the Atlanta Daily World. And so if you're doing a, any kind of research on African-American history, and you search, uh, you can keyword search all of these newspapers at once, and that's a great source. And I found a lot of stuff about Lewis Austin because the Pittsburgh Courier uh, and the Norfolk Journal and Guide in particular uh, reported a lot about Austin and the Carolina Times. And in fact, I found some reprints of articles prior to 37, so I couldn't find elsewhere, where his, his uh, editorials were reprinted in, say, the Pittsburgh Courier. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of, you know, like a lot of history. It's kind of a, a little bit of detective work. Right. Sure. So with our last question, any thoughts on the decline of the black print press and um, and new media? You know, you see any uh, connections between past and present in terms of how African-Americans have used the media to advance uh, the struggle for black equality? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of, I mean, there's both uh, connections and uh, between, unfortunately, a lot of the struggles are quite similar. I mean, you could track uh, issues of police brutality in the Carolina Times going back to the 30s and 40s. Um, in Austin regularly challenged injustice, of course, those were the days when the juries were generally all white. Uh, but even today, of course, that's uh, obviously that's a big, uh, big issue. And many African-Americans now the black press is still doing the same thing they have done for decades. I mean, they are challenging injustice. And, and although, uh, you know, perhaps proportionally, maybe the black press, I don't know, the print press is not as significant maybe as going back to the 30s and the 40s, but uh, there are over 200 black newspapers. I mean, there's an organization, the, the black uh, publishers organization called the NNPA or uh, National Newspaper Publishers Association, which has a website. And if you go to that website, you'll see there's over, they, they have over 200 uh, uh, black newspapers that are members. And most of them are now online as well. So you can read the black press online uh, pretty easily. And a lot of those newspapers are quite significant and important. Uh, right here in, in North Carolina, we still have the, I mean, the Wilmington Journal, which has been an important uh, newspaper for many decades uh, which is also owned by the Gervais family, which, as I mentioned, the Carolinian as well, the Charlotte Post, uh, and uh, uh, a number of others, and Winston-Salem uh, as well. So, um, But, of course, now we have a lot of other forms of uh, media, uh, social media, which have become very important, especially with the pervasiveness of video, uh, you know, videos through, you know, using your cell phone to take videos. So, uh, you know, we do often get videos where bystanders take videos of things like police brutality or police murders of people. And, you know, that, you know, gives maybe some more opportunity f to get justice. Although, unfortunately, uh, as we saw recently with the uh, some of the recent cases, uh, justice is still not forthcoming. So uh, as I kind of wrote in the epilogue of my book, you know, a lot of the issues are still you know, still problematic voting rights issues, um, you know, suppression of voting rights and uh, police brutality, uh, mass incarceration, uh, economic discrimination. So a lot of the issues are similar. Just, uh, I mean, unfortunately, racism takes different forms over as history, you know, proceeds. All right. So uh, tell us about your future plans for research. Sure. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, at this point, uh, I have 
I guess my major project was to try to expand the Lewis Austin focus on the Southern black press and look at the Southern black press and the long black freedom struggle. Uh, so that's kind of a big project. Uh, so looking at a lot of these other newspapers like the, uh, you know, the Arkansas state press and, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, Columbia, South Carolina lighthouse and informer, uh, which were very, you know, forthright in challenging racial injustice. But there were also some, some black newspapers that were a little bit different. I mean, there was a, a man named Percy Green uh, of the Jackson Advocate in Mississippi. And of course, you can imagine the, the, you know, the obstacles for the black press in Mississippi were even more so than in places like North Carolina. So looking at someone like that who actually collaborated with the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, which was the state a basically segregation organization during the 50s and 60s uh, and he was being paid off by them so there's you know kind of a wow. kind of a complex story to look at the southern black press and and how they did it so, but that's that's kind of my major project and 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 the other thing i'm kind of uh, looking at doing is uh you know telling the story of lewis austin and the black freedom struggle in north carolina you know i stopped in basically in 1971 because that's the year that austin uh, passed and so looking at, you know, subsequent, because a lot of people thought that the black press kind of with integration, a lot of African-American journalists got jobs at the white press in, you know, historically white newspapers in the 60s and 70s. And the, and the white newspapers started to cover the black communities, at least more than they had been in the past. Uh, but I find in the 70s that the black press was quite vibrant in the era of, you know, black power. And uh, so perhaps looking at the, the Carolina Times and maybe some of the other uh, North Carolina newspapers, which still face tremendous obstacles. Uh, just to point out too, in 1973, the Wilmington uh, Journal, the black newspaper in Wilmington was, was bombed by a white supremacist. And in 1979, the Carolina Times uh, building uh, was burned to the ground. So, um, you know, the movement, obviously the struggle did not end. Uh, with uh, the late 60s or early 70s. Well, Dr. Gershenhorn, we have taken up enough of your time this after afternoon, well, morning really, just about afternoon. <laughs> but I want to thank you for participating in this interview about your important book, Lewis Austin and the Carolina, Carolina Times, A Life in the Long Black Freedom Struggle. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Williams. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Absolutely. You're welcome.